John chapter 4, uh, verse, verses 19 through 24, uh, says this. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We've now come to the final lesson in our series titled, The Things That We Do. And uh, I hope that all of you, I have, uh, had uh, a wonderful time learning uh, about the various things that we do each Lord's Day, uh, morning and evening, uh, understanding the significance uh, of what we do and why we do it. Uh, Throughout this entire series, us elders, as elders, and Brother Bobby have tried to help you understand both the reasoning or I should say the reasoning, some importance and the significance behind the things that we do each Lord's Day service. We won't don't want to do things uh, half heartedly. We want to know the significance of why we do things and we don't want to do things uh, blindfolded. We want to know what we do them, uh, why we do them, where they're coming from. Are they biblical? Are they not? And if you remember, we began our first lesson uh, with why do we gather? We began the first lesson with why do we ga- do we gather? Uh, do we, why do we gather for public worship? Uh, and the answer that we, we are given from the scriptures is we gather simply because God has commanded us to gather. We gather because God has commanded us to gather. God has commanded his people to gather corporately to worship him on his holy day. God has set the, the Sabbath uh, day aside for us to worship him. Uh, Christ uh, rose on the, on the, the first day um, and we look back at that wonderful resurrection um, that Christ uh, and redemption that Christ has won on our behalf. Uh, and, we come, and, we, and we come and we do so through uh, the preached word and through the Lord's Supper and, and the singing of songs and, and all that. And we then look at the various things we do during corporate worship, which is pray. Uh, we publicly read the scriptures together, uh, sing hymns and spiritual songs to our God. We listen to the preached word and we participate in the Lord's Supper. Two weeks ago, during our morning worship uh, service, we considered how are we are to worship or how we are to observe the Christian Sabbath. <clears throat> what are the things that God has prescribed for us not to do on his holy day? And how are we to observe his holy day rightfully and more so biblically? And it's clear from Isaiah 58 that what we are not allowed to do are the ordinary and regular things that we do Monday through Saturday. We have six days to do whatever we want, but God has given us or given himself one day for, for, for us to worship him, for us to gather, for us to spend the, the entire day both publicly and privately worshiping him and honoring him. God has set this day apart for holy and special use, therefore, We, as his image bearers, are to copy our Lord in setting the day apart. Now, saints, in our final teaching on the things we do, 
We want to consider a doctrine, and hear this, that grounds what we do each Lord's Day service. This is what grounds what we do each and every Lord's Day service. If you want to say, this is the foundation of all the things that we do, Lord's Day service. Um, So my question I have for you, friends, is who determines how we are to worship God? Who determines how we are to worship God? Have you ever wondered, I used to wonder this, and I still do because I'm not very fluent with a lot of other different uh, sects of religion, of, of Christianity, but have you ever wondered why Roman Catholics have a Mass and Protestants don't? Why Roman Catholics have a Mass and why do Protestants don't have one? Why don't we have a Mass? Or why do Lutherans and Anglicans worship in a way that's distinct from other evangelical churches? Why do we see different things happening in these other churches, uh, but it seems that we don't do those things in our church? Why don't we all worship the same way? Why, don't, well, why do some churches do this, and why do other churches do that? And from what we see in church history, it's clear that the one thing that tends to change the most is the way people approach and worship God. The one thing that changes the most is the way people approach and worship God. In fact, during the Reformation, the question of who regulates worship was the necessary implication of the grand debate of sola scriptura. The question of who determines how we are to approach God is what made Martin Luther question the Catholic Church. So this evening, saints, we want to answer this question. Has God given the church the freedom to worship him any way they please? Has God given the church the freedom to worship him any way that they please? In other words, can we preach what we want, sing only the songs we like, use whatever means during the Lord's Supper? Is worship left to us and no one else? Those are the questions we want to consider. And this evening, saints, to help us answer those questions, I want to present to you a doctrine that many of you might might have not heard before, Uh, But the doctrine is the regulative principle of worship, the regulative principle of worship. That's what we will. uh, That's what we will be considering this evening. And to help us uh, examine the regulative principle of worship, I want to consider it in two points. That is, first, defining the regulative principle of worship. And number two, objections and blessings of the regulative principle of worship. So number one, defining the regulative principle of worship. And number two, objections and blessings of the regulative principle of worship. Um, So let's first let's first define what the regulative principle of worship is. What, What is this doctrine? Again, I ask you, how are we to approach God in worship? And mind you, when I say worship, I don't necessarily mean just the singing of songs. Right. I mean, how do we approach God when we when we when we come and listen to the preached word? Uh, the preached word is worship as well. Um, or when we pray, how are we to pray um, or even partake of the Lord's Supper? Right. Those things are even giving too. Um, how are we to approach God in worship? Who regulates how we are to worship God? And historically, Uh, There are three views that Christians adhere to in regards to how God may be worshipped. There are three views 
that Christians fall into. And the first view is the inventive principle of worship. The inventive principle of worship. Uh, This should be familiar to many of you because this is the view of the Roman Catholic Church. The inventive principle of worship. The Catholic Church says that the church is free to establish the parameters of worship. The church has the authority to invent certain elements of worship that, hear this, all must hold to. Like the Mass. Quick note on the Mass. The theology behind the Mass is nowhere ever taught in Scripture. In fact, the theology of the Mass contradicts what Scripture says. The Mass distorts the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. It distorts the priesthood of Christ. And it distorts the Lord's Supper. One theologian named John Bradford said, If ever Antichrist had child or daughter, it is this Mass. Under the name of Christ, it destroys Christ. Under the title of God's service, it destroyeth God's service. Under the color of the church, it destroyeth the church. The Catholic Church says that the church may invent or create as it pleases. Because authority, hear this, resides in the church. Because Roman Catholicism recognizes the Bible as well as church tradition. And hear this, as an equal authority with the Bible... So church tradition is on equal authority with what the Bible says. Whatever the church says, it's infallible, it's deficient, it's inerrant, just as the Bible. Then the church, hear this, can make up whatever they want and treat their inventions as if God has said it. The second view is the normative principle. The normative principle. And this is the majority position of the day. This is the majority position of the day. This is what many churches... um, the broader evangelical churches will hold to. And that is the normative principle. Um, This view, uh, held most notably by Lutherans and Anglicans, states that uh, you may have in worship whatever God has expressly commanded, plus whatever is not expressly forbidden. Let me give you you one more time. You may have worship... Or you may worship whatever the way, any way that God has expressly commanded, plus, however, and whatever God has not expressly forbidden. Simply put, this view says if God hasn't forbidden it, then we can do it. If God hasn't forbidden this, uh, forbidden this or that, then we can do it. Uh, the statement, God doesn't prohibit this practice, justifies for many their practices. God hasn't said it, so why can't we do it? Such, uh, so such elements such as liturgical ceremonies, drama, dance, performance-orientated music are acceptable in worship because God has uh, not forbidden the church to use those elements in worship. We have no argument there because we can't say because God has not said uh, the Arbica position paper written on the reg- regulative principle of worship. And after this, saints, I, uh, a good, it'll, it'll be a good night reading for you. It'll put you nicely to sleep. Uh, go to the Arbica page and read the, the regulative principle of worship position paper, and it will really benefit you. It says this, uh, those churches that hold to such practices in worship often de-emphasize, hear that, de-emphasize the role of the word of God in worship. 
It is not uncommon to see such services to hear very little reading of the word of God and little, if any, exposition of Scripture. Many of the sermons, rather than being expositions of Scripture, are topical sermons directed toward felt needs of the individual. Now, before we look at the third view, um, I think we should add a view that, again, a, a, a majority of the churches across this world hold to. And that is the experiential principle. The experiential principle. And this principle simply says this. Whatever works, whatever woos, and whatever wows the congregation, then those are the elements the church will use. Whatever works, whatever wows, and whatever woos the congregation, then those are the elements the church will use. So... Rock band-like music is what wows the congregation, so that's what we'll implement. Uh, motivational sermons are what gets the congregation to come back, so we'll preach those type of sermons. At the core of this principle, saints, it's entertainment. In this view, worship is geared more towards having an experience with God. And just like the normative principle... The experiential principle says if God hasn't said explicitly, and that's the, that's the key with a lot of these people who hold these views, is, well, God hasn't explicitly said it, word for word. Their biblical is at the core. It has explicitly said in his word that we can't use certain elements in worship, then everything is fair game. And the third and most uh, biblical-based view is what we call the regulative principle of worship, the regulative principle of of worship. And this simply says this God regulates his worship. Simply put, God regulates his worship. Worship is prescribed and commanded, and the elements of his worship are revealed. God and God alone determines how sinners, hear this, God and God alone determines how sinners may approach him. God regulates and determines how sinners may approach him. God, through his word, regulates how we are to corporately worship him. This is no different from how we think as well. We regulate many things in our own lives. If someone was to come to your house, you regulate where they can go. A lot of you don't like when they go into your, you know, the master bedroom. Or if they don't use this bathroom, they have to use that bathroom. Or they can't open the fridge. Um, you regulate how you deal with your children. Your children can't do this, can't do that. Um, so this, this principle shouldn't be foreign to us. Um, however, as one pastor said, the word of God is clear. It's just hard to swallow. And that's why many people reject the regular principle of worship. Because even though it's clear, it's hard to, to swallow. There has to be more than just this. Um, but we'll get there. We reject the inventive principle, saints. Because we as a church don't have the right to add anything to the worship of God without God's permission in his word. We don't have the right to add anything to God, to the worship of God without God's permission in his word. And we reject the normative principle because that leaves the church with the authority to add whatever elements to corporate worship they seem fit. That sounds strange uh, in practice. I mean, at first glance, it seems, hmm, I can accept that, but let's just, let's just see how far this can go. It leaves the church with too much of an open door 
to invent new inventive ways people can approach God. Let me give you an example. If it, let's say I'm preaching, and let's say on this side we have you know, uh, my beautiful wife, Leela, and Martina, and Nancy, and Rosita, and they're serving ice cream. God has not said that we can't serve ice cream during a worship service, right? So why can't we do that, right? Or, or, or let's say, and, and the church down the block does this, while the, while the sermon is going on, there's haircuts going on outside. The Bible hasn't said that we can't do those things, so why not? That's the danger of the normative principle of worship. It leaves the, and that, I know those are extreme, but it leaves the door open to those type of extreme views. Um, and, and what's at the heart of this, saints, um, is, is how, how can we approach God? This is, what that, this is what that's, what's, what's at the heart of each of these uh, positions um, and principles, is how can we approach God? Um, and I think the regulative principle of worship most biblically puts forth how we are to approach the divine. That worship is not something that we should take lightly. Because as John Calvin would say, worship is where God meets with his people. Worship is where God meets with his people. So we want to, we want to hone in and understand if God meets with his people during worship or in worship, we want to understand uh, how God has regulated the elements of how he meets with his people. What are the things God uses uh, in terms of meeting with his people? Okay. And so again, the regulative principle of worship says that God has regulated how we are to approach him in corporate worship. And he's done so through his word. God's word is sufficient, but God, through his word, sets forth the parameters of how we are to worship him. But we have to ask, is the regulative principle of worship biblical? Is the regulative principle of worship biblical? It's in our confession of faith. Many uh, of the, as a matter of fact, this is a major tenet of, of the reformed faith. Um, we have to ask, is this biblical? Can we biblically prove that we aren't allowed to make up whatever we want during worship and that God alone has the final say? Can we prove that biblically? Let's consider a few texts. Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel should be familiar to all of us. Uh, verse 1 through 7 says this. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived bore, uh, and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to, is to overcome you, but you must roll over it. From the earliest records in Scripture, saints, we see how important it is to offer up acceptable worship to God. We see in the very uh, early stages of, of redemptive history that God has prescribed a certain way for us to approach him. In Genesis 4, God records how Cain did not bring the offering uh, God rec uh, regarded and and the offering that Cain brought to God was a detestable offering in God's sight. 
It was an unacceptable offering in God's sight. He brought the things he had grown in the gardens instead of an animal sacrifice. God had commanded that the only and the best and pure animals were to be offered up as a sacrifice. But Cain insisted on worshiping in his own way, regardless of what God had approved. And it's clear from the early stages of redemptive history that God only accepts worship according to what he has commanded. He only accepts worship according to what he has commanded. The story of Cain and Abel teaches us many things. But the one that stands out boldly is we can't approach God on our own terms. That we can't approach God any way that we want to. God and God alone, through his word, regulates how we are to approach him. And we can't bring uh, to God anything less than what he has prescribed. We see the regular principle of worship not only in Genesis chapter 4, but also in the second commandment. The second commandment says in Exodus 4.20, You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The second commandment clearly um, is, 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 is ample evidence for us in regards to the regulative principle of worship. Now, you might say, where do we get the, the regular principle of worship from the second commandment? All God is saying is we are not to make images of him. It seems like that at face value. But friends, we have to look at what's behind the commandment and what's motivating the commandment. And it's simply God will not be worshipped, hear this, after the manner of our own liking. That God will not be worshipped after the manner of our own liking. God commands us not to make any carved images of, of, of who we think he looks like. Why? Because that leads to idolatry. We aren't to make any carved images of who we think he looks like. And when we read that God con- condemns idolatry in the second commandment, we have to ask ourselves what idolatry represents. What does idolatry represent? And saints, idolatry is simply one of the most egregious examples of unacceptable worship. It is the most the undetestable undete- uh, uh, examples of worship. The making of images for, uh, for use in worship is a perfect example of what Paul says in Colossians 2, will worship. That's will worship. God is forbidding any man that attempts to worship God through the work of his own hands. So in the second commandment, God forbids not only making and worshiping images of himself, but any form of worship fashioned by the hands of men rather than by God. Clearly, the second commandment um, says that we can't invent how we worship God. We must obey God's word and not our own human inventions. We must obey God's word and, and come at him on his terms and not by our own human opinions or inventions or ideas. We must not worship God according to, hear this, how we perceive him. But we must worship God in accordance to how he's revealed himself in his word. We must, we must worship him in, in accordance to how he's revealed himself in his word. We see in Exodus 32 how serious God takes how we approach him in worship. In Exodus 32, we have the story of the golden calf. Uh, verses 1 through 10 says this. 
When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought, up, brought us up out of the land of Egypt, uh, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off rings of gold and are in the ears of your wives, that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold, and they were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered uh, burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made themselves a calf, a golden calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, these are your gods, O Israel. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt? And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Verse 10 Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. The story of Israel and the golden calf tells us that we can't worship God on our own terms and after the fashion of our own liking and understanding. What, the golden calf, uh, what, what made the golden calf idolatrous saints was not that it was a new God, but it was an attempt to worship the true God in a manner of their own, of Israel's own devising. One theologian said, the prohibition of carved altars makes it clear that the root problem is not the, carve, is not the carving of a tangible token of the presence of God, but hear this, but the fashioning of such a token without the express command of God. It's not that they made an altar and a golden calf, but God didn't command it. God didn't command the golden calf to be constructed in order for the people to worship him. Any carving was to be done at his direction and not at the whim of the worshiper. The worshiper doesn't have the right to invent new or better ways to worship God. And the result of Israel's rebellion of carving an idol and worshiping that idol was so severe the end of Exodus 32, hear this. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. Saints, the way we approach God is not something that we are to play around with. Because it's not something that God plays around with. We see the same example in the story of Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, ironic, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after burning fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. These men fired up the incense offering in a manner that provoked God to immediately judge them by execution. Nadab and Abihu, who were the sons of Aaron, offered to the Lord that which the Lord had not commanded. 
The Bible says the incest offering that these boys offer up was a strange fire. A strange fire. It was a foreign and unusual. It was a different fire to God. And because Nadab and Abihu's rebellious worship, uh, because of Nadab and Abihu's rebellious worship, God didn't wait 10 years, 100 years. He immediately judged them by fire. And saints, we can go through many passages in the Old Testament that show us how serious God takes how people are to worship him. But before we close this point, let me give you two New Testament examples of the regulative principle of worship. Uh, People might say, well, the way that God has prescribed worship was only severe and, and he only prescribed how we are to worship him in the Old Testament. The saints, the God of the old is the God of the new. And we see examples of the regulative principle of worship first in John chapter four. We have the story of Jesus and his encounter with the woman of the well. After Jesus has exposed her sin and idolatry, he then moves to a conversation about worship. Verse 20 to 24 say this. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Two things we gather from Christ's words is first worship must be in accordance to God's character. Worship must be in accordance to God's character. Worship must not contradict, but hear this, must reflect the being of God. It must amen the being of God. This is why theology proper, the doctrine of God, is so vital to the Christian life. Because it, 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 it deals with how we approach God and how we worship God in song and how we preach um, and how we view the Lord's Supper. In our day and age, many Christians sing songs to God that don't reflect how he's revealed himself. Many Christians view God as their divine boyfriend. And many of the Christian songs that are out there portray God as a cuddly and cute being rather than an unchanging and eternal simple being. Saints, we must not romanticize our doctrine of God, both in the words we sing and the sermons we preach. We must not speak of him or sing songs about him that are contrary to his nature. That's why we sing songs about the Trinity and him being uh, unchanging, unchanging. We must not speak of God as if he's just our heavenly boyfriend. Christ also says that worship must be in truth. Worship must be in accordance to God's word. We must search the scriptures and worship God by how he's revealed for us to do so. We must worship God in spirit and in truth. We see the regular principle of worship in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus said, and said to, uh, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Now, where do we get the regular principle of worship from there? Note that Jesus Christ gives the church a very limited authority. Note verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. How are we to make disciples and how are the people to observe the things that we say? Well, what are the things that we are to say to these people whom we are making disciples of? Only the things that Christ has commanded. Only his word. When Christ is saying, uh, what Christ is saying is uh, the only, only those things taught in the word of God are to be taught to the nations. The opinions of men are not to be taught to the nations. But God's word is to be taught to the nations. Therefore, whatever the church teaches by way of doctrine, church government, and the songs that we sing must come from the Bible alone. Not from the opinions of men. The church does not have the authority to make up its own doctrine or worship or government. But Christ here regulates what the church is allowed to preach. What the church is allowed to preach. So, saints, I think it's clear from God's revelation in both Old and New Testaments that he and he alone regulates how the worshiper is to worship him. From the various texts we've examined, we see that in order for us to properly worship God, we must come under submission to how he has prescribed for us to worship him. And the regular principle of worship uh, teaches us that worship to God must be according to his word and his word alone. It's not his word and the opinions of men or his word and the inventions of men. It's God, God and God alone. The regular principle of worship shows us how the Bible functions as our guidebook for worship. The regular principle of worship keeps us within bounds of how to rightly, rightly offer biblical worship to our triune God. Not offer strange fire, but offer what God has prescribed for us. And lastly, I want to add that the regular principle of worship is a necessary implication of our commitment to sola scriptura. Um, the regular, let me say that again. The regular principle of worship is a necessary implication of our commitment to sola scriptura. Sola scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. That the Bible and the Bible alone is the only rule of faith for the believer's life. Sola Scriptura teaches that, the, that God's word is clear, that God's word is enough, that God's word is without error and incapable and unable to be wrong. And it's from the very mouth of God, so it's authoritative. And since we affirm sola scriptura, then the regular principle of worship should be a no-brainer. The authority, infallibility, and sufficiency and perspicuity of Scripture inform the Christian as to what pleases God in worship. So it's a necessary implication of that one truth of the Reformation amongst other truths that we hold on tightly, right? Um, it's what distincts us from, from Roman Catholics and from, from others who deny the, the, the inspiration and the veracity and the authority and, and inerrancy of Scripture. So now, saints, uh, after we looked at the biblical witness to the doctrine of the regular principle of worship, let's now consider our last point, our final point, and that is 
the objections and the blessings of the regular principle of worship. The objections and the blessings of the regulative principle of worship. And in light of what we just learned in point one, there are many objections that might arise to the doctrine. There are some that might say, well, the regular principle of worship puts restraints and limits on what we can do during worship. And handcuffs the Christian's freedom to worship God any way that they want to. Some might say that the regular principle of worship turns worship into duty rather than full freedom of expression of the heart. But saints, that couldn't be further from the truth. The regular principle of worship doesn't handcuff our worship, but allows us to worship with freedom, to worship with a freedom of conscience. It allows us to worship with a right freedom and a right conscience. Consider the words of Dr. James Renahan. The regular principle of worship was constructed to protect the liberty of God's people. The regular principle of worship was constructed to protect the liberty of God's people. To make you do something in worship that God has not commanded is a violation of your liberty. And friends, that statement couldn't be more true. We don't want to worship God any way that we please. We don't want to worship God uh, and have our worship to God to be open with no regulations. We need structure and we need parameters. Why? Because if worship was left open with no structure, then hear this then how would we know if our worship is even acceptable to God? If if worship is open to whatever we want to invent, then how do we know if our worship is pleasing in the sight of God? The freedom we have in the regular principle of worship is knowing in good conscience that my worship is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. The freedom is knowing that we are not worshiping in vain. The freedom is knowing that we aren't just saying words just to say them. The freedom is knowing That when we worship God, we aren't just wasting our time. Saints, that's the beauty of the regular principle of worship. It's knowing that you are worshiping God the right way. We all want to do things the right way, don't we? If we deny the regular principle of worship, then we are saying that there are better ways to approach God. That there are better and and new ways to approach God. That means men's hearts can be stirred up better. If we can invent a new, and hear this, a more comfortable way to approach our Lord. That's why many people reject the regular principle of worship, because it's not comfortable to them. Because it's according to God's word. And like we said earlier, God's word, although it's clear, at times it's very hard to swallow. Saints, this is what plagues the broader evangelical church. The broader evangelical church preaches that we want comfortable doctrines. We want comfortable preaching. We want comfortable songs in worship. We want expression in when we sing to our Lord. We want the pastor or the preacher to express himself freely. If he wants to preach at the end of the aisle, he can preach there. If he wants to stand up, throw water, he can do that. But also, the broader evangelical church preaches individualism. It preaches individualism. And many Christians across this world Say amen to comfortability, to expression, and to individualism. Stir it up. We have ourselves a wonderful, spirit-led church. 
the reason saints is because people want to do things on their own terms. People want to follow their own law and not God's law. Many Christians say amen to expression and their so-called freedom of worshiping God in any way that they please. Saints, I say idolatry. That's idolatry. If we can approach God any way that we want, then the God whom we approach will look nothing more than a divine copy of ourselves. If we are allowed to approach God any way that we want. And I say allowed, not by God's word, but from our own inventions or minds. If we can approach God any way that we choose, then we will not be worshiping a God of the Bible, but we will be worshiping the God of our own inventions and ideas. Watch TBN. Watch Daystar. The Word Network. Hear the type of sermons they preach and the songs they sing. It's all idolatry. All of it. They're simply worshiping a divine copy of themselves. And the people fill church and the people fill their churches up because people love to hear and worship themselves. They love that. But friends, how can people who are in these massive churches, and not even the massive churches, but there are some small churches that do the same. How can they get away with such blasphemous worship? Because no one regulates their worship other than themselves. That's how they get away with such crazy worship, because no one regulates it but themselves. It's their ideas. They have a regular principle of worship. It's just they're the final authority and not God. But also we can get in. We can also say the world as well. But I won't get into that because that's a whole nother sermon. Many Christians today, including some of the ex-members of this church, are leaving good biblically based churches because the songs that are being sung are outdated. We don't want Isaac Watts. We, we want, don't get mad, we want Hillsong. We don't want the old hymns that stood the test of time. We want the new stuff. We don't want the outdated things. There's too much theology in the sermon, not enough practicality, too much doctrine, not enough Teach me how to live. The Lord's Supper should be only for Christians only. It should be all for Christians, for, for all Christians. Not for those who are baptized members of a local church. Saints, personal taste doesn't take priority over God's word and what he says. Personal taste does not take priority over God's words, word. And our feelings and how we want things to be done doesn't trump what God says in his word. And the beauty of the regular principle of worship says that we don't have to invent or come up with clever ways to worship God. But God's word is sufficient and tells us how we are to approach God. Do we, do we in this church have special lights? No. Do we have smoke machines? Do we have large, loud uh, guitar solos and drum solos? And are our uh, sermons alike to motivational speeches? No, we don't have those things. We don't, we don't have those where you can go outside and get a haircut and get an ice cream and go get a Starbucks coffee. We don't have that. But we have the Lord's Supper. We have the public reading of Scripture. We have prayer. We have expositional preaching. We have baptism. And we have the collection 
of offerings. Amen. Amen to that. And saints, those are the elements that God has given to us in his word that we are to incorporate when we gather for corporate worship. Those are the elements. The elements of corporate worship are what we are that what we use should be word centered. The elements of worship that we use should be word saturated. We preach the word in corporate worship. We sing the word in corporate worship. We pray the word in corporate worship. We read the word in corporate worship. We give our offering in according to the word in corporate worship. And we see the word at the Lord's Supper. Saints, we reject any ideas or inventions of men. Hear this. No matter how sanctified the idea is, no matter how sanctified you think your idea is, no matter if you think that your idea and invention and opinion will give more glory to God, we reject that. If it's not biblically based, if God's word has not prescribed it, then God, then God has forbidden it. As one theologian said, uh, Samuel uh, Rutherford said, if it's not commanded, it's forbidden. Uh, friends, all interpret- we also reject all interpretations of God's word concerning worship. Uh, we, one's mer- uh, one might say, well, the, we read the Psalms. We see people dancing. It's okay for people to dance during worship services. We reject all those type of interpretations concerning worship because all interpretations concerning worship must exegetically not contradict God's original intended meaning. You can't come up with some new exegesis that no one throughout history has come up with. Or you can't make your exegesis of the text comfortable or, or, or you can't persuade it to what you want it to say. That's, as many of you know, that's eisegesis. Uh, all of this to say, saints, is we worship God according to God's word and his word alone. Now, one might say, lastly, that the regular principle of worship removes emotion and heartfelt worship to God. Uh, but saints, again, that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, when we see or hear churches singing to God with loud drums and loud guitars and singing these songs that are getting everybody pumped up, let us not see that and say that's true worship to God in song. A lot of people do that. That what we see in the broader evangelical church and how they sing songs to God, man, that's spirit-led right there. That's how, you sing, that's how you sing songs to God. Or when the preacher is shouting non-biblical words and the crowd is amening and clapping, let us not see that and say, that's true and faithful preaching. Saints, it's all show. All of it. It's all emotionalism. And friends, emotions should never come or should never come subordinate to the truth emotions should never come subordinate to the truth no matter how exciting the strange fire is seen in the eyes of spectators it's still strange fire it's still unacceptable worship emotions should not cause us to amen the truth but the truth should stir our emotions the truth leads our emotions our emotions doesn't lead the truth and what the regular principle of worship does it 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 conforms our emotions guys it conforms our emotions to the truth of god's word 
our emotions during worship should be should be centered on God and directed by God. And lastly, saints, what blessings do we receive from this doctrine of the regular principle of worship? What blessings do we have? The blessing is simply this, that when we worship God the way that he has prescribed for us to do so in his word, we can be sure that God is pleased with our worship. That's I mean, what else could we want? What, what other more can we want that that God looks down at our worship and does not frown upon us? But he, he and, and excuse the language, but he smiles at us. When we don't invent new ways to approach God, we can be sure that our worship is not in vain. But God, through worship, blesses us. When we worship properly, God blesses us. When we listen to faithful preaching, we can be sure that the word is being used to sanctify us. When we sing songs according to God's word, we can be sure that our faith is being strengthened up. When we properly partake of the Lord's Supper, we can be sure that all the benefits of Christ's redemption are communicated through the Holy Spirit to our souls. We can be sure that all the means of grace that God gives to his people and distributes to his people through the supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit are there and present. When we do things God's way and not our own way. So in closing, saints, I hope what you've learned in, uh, in this study and in all of the things that we've talked about is worship matters. Worship matters. And how we approach God matters. We should not just order our church's worship based on whatever fills the most seats or whatever is most comfortable or whatever is most traditional. Instead, we must put time and prayerful thought into what the Bible teaches about worship. And we see in the scriptures and what we see in the scriptures is God has prescribed for, to us how he is to be worshiped. And we, as the worshipers, must obey him. Let's pray.